This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the Midas Touch Legal AF Podcast. The AF stands for Analysis Friends. Ben Micellis here of Garagos and Garagos, joined by Michael Popak of Zumpano Patricius and Popak. We are your weekly enablers of legal dissection. Welcome to another episode on our new day, new time, Sunday. Great to be here. Popak, how are you doing? I'm doing great. And if it's Sundays, it must be legal AF. Exactly, exactly. We have a lot to talk about today, including some minus touch legal battles. Everybody knows that Popak has become the efficient, essentially the general counsel of all Midas Touch related legal matters, which has kept us all incredibly busy enough for, I think, a whole law firm based on Midas Touch's battles with Fox and other enablers of the GQP. We'll get to that at the end of the podcast. But we've been hearing a lot about the Department of Justice. So I want to get in and I want to talk about all these various issues surrounding the Department of Justice. And just uh, at a very basic level, the Justice Department, what is it? It's the Federal Executive Department of the United States government. It's tasked with enforcement of federal law and the administration of justice. It was formed in 1870 in terms of at least the modern incarnation of what the Justice Department is. It's headquartered, of course, in Washington, D.C. The current attorney general is Merrick Garland, who used to be uh, on the uh, the D.C. uh, Circuit Court of Appeals. Prior to that, we had uh, Bill Barr, who basically ran the Department of Justice as Trump's de facto personal law firm. And so it was fair to call the Department of Justice then Trump's Department of Justice, despite the fact that... And Sessions before him. And Sessions before him, who basically did Trump's entire legal um, bidding. Um, There are various law enforcement agencies as well that are administered by the Department of Justice. So when you hear about... Of course, the United States Marshal Service, the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Prisons, the National Institute of Corrections, the Bureau of Alcohol and Tobacco, the DEA, the Office of the Inspector General. These are all administered by the Department of Justice. And then there are also different divisions in the Department of Justice. There's the antitrust division. There is a civil division. There's a civil rights division. Criminal Division, Environment and Natural Resources Division, a National Security Division, a Justice Management Division, and a Tax Division. And that just gives you some framework of how expansive the tasks are and expansive the scope is of the Department of Justice, right? But at its core, the Department of 
uh, justice, you know, uh, administers um, federal law. I mean, it, it, it enforces federal law um, and at the highest level. And so, Popak, we've been hearing a lot about the Department of Justice. Um, and one of the stories that have uh, come into focus this week is uh, prior practice and procedure by the Department of Justice, of course, in their capacity as uh, investigators, um, uh, going after uh, records, uh, metadata, phone records, uh, emails uh, of reporters, of Congress members. What's going on here, Popak? Yeah, it's just a disturbing set of revelations that started with the Biden Department of Justice revealing a couple of months ago that they had learned that the prior Department of Justice under both Barr and Sessions had obtained through the federal court system secretly subpoenas, not just of the press. And that is already earth shattering and spine tingling and Nixonian to understand that the Trump administration by way of uh, at least Jeff Sessions and, and maybe Barr went after four New York Times reporters, a Washington Post White House correspondent, a CNN reporter to, and convinced a federal magistrate and then a judge to allow them to obtain a subpoena to obtain from Apple for iPhone records and other technology companies like Microsoft, the most intimate details of a reporter and a reporter's life, which implicates tremendously the First Amendment. I thought that was terrible. And and every week we got a new story. Today was Washington Post, tomorrow was the New York Times, then it was CNN. Then we learned earlier in last week that the enemies list that Trump was executing on included the high, some of the highest ranking Democratic Congress people that we have, including Adam Schiff, the head of the House Intelligence Committee. So let's just let's just put a put this uh, you know draw a line in the sand on this. Trump, through his Department of Justice, targeted an enemies list, including Adam Schiff, to obtain his records while he was sitting in office. I mean, there's nothing more chilling than that. And so, what is what is up for grabs now? And the tentacles of this include a couple of things. One, there's going to be a House investigation, whether the Republicans sit on their hands or not. There's going to be a House investigation by the by the Justice Committee uh, as to what happened here, because there are still prosecutors, career prosecutors that are sitting in the Department of Justice that participated in this process who did not resign who did not, did not have moral conviction and authority to resign in the face of being asked to do something like this, which they should have. And they're still sitting in the Department of Justice. So how we've gotten this far is uh, Merrick Garland, our attorney general, has appointed Lisa Monaco, his number two, to, to um, task the Department of Justice's in-house inspector general a guy by the name of Michael Horowitz, who you normally would never hear about, to do an investigation as to what happened, why and when and who was involved. So you've got the department looking at itself to determine reflectively who should be 
sanctioned, penalized, and fired as a result of participating in that. Then you've got the House going to be looking at the investigation to determine if federal federal laws were violated or congressional laws were violated. And then you got the department probably prosecuting and investigating related to that. And then, Ben, bring our followers up on why William Barr may be in trouble for perjury related to this whole investigation. Yeah. So as you may recall, it was actually Kamala Harris uh, during Senate testimony who had asked Attorney General Barr specifically if uh, any investigation, if any subpoenas, if any probes were done at the behest or the be re- or the request um, of Donald Trump, um, at which point Bill Barr you know, said, I don't know or I don't remember. Um, you know, and obviously tried to dodge uh, that specific question. Now, on the topic of Kamala Harris, um, because uh, the specific issue of whether Bill Barr potentially committed perjury or lied or misled uh, the Senate relates to now Vice President Kamala Harris, then sitting Senator from California, Kamala Harris's questioning. Now, I remember when Kamala Harris was the state attorney general in California. I remember when she was running uh, for office and I was a first year, second year lawyer. And I had asked her a question about what what was the most important thing that she would tell a new lawyer um, was the question that I had asked her. Um, and her response always stuck with me to this day and I think is relevant here. And it because it was a very unusual legal answer. Um, And she said, I learned that a lawyer's power of their pen is something not to take lightly. And every day I realize that when I sign a pleading, when I sign a complaint, when I sign a lawsuit, um, when I sign a subpoena, that what I do has serious implications and ramifications on other people's lives whether that will embroil somebody in a lawsuit, whether that will compel them to do something. But a lawyer, because they go to law school and they pass an exam called a bar exam, is imbued with these powers. You're and an sometimes officer of I think the court. Lot, You're also an yeah, officer of the court. An officer of the court as well. And I think lawyers don't necessarily appreciate their power of the pen and that they have choices. To and and they're all, and they're guided by their rules of professional responsibility. They're guided by the ethics of their profession to do the right thing. Um, but in, in these specific instances, um, there were lawyers at the Department of Justice um, who enabled, through their legal acumen, through their legal abilities, potential illegality and in many cases, actual illegality of Donald Trump. I think there are two separate issues here. Um, You know, on the one hand, the issue of subpoenaing reporters and gathering reporter records and leaks that are relating to kind of whistleblower complaints against the government. So there, I think the issue relates more to a policy. Do we believe that our government should be utilizing their governmental powers to intrude on whistleblowing activity and to interfere with, you know, intrude on 
free speech and the ability of reporters to conduct their investigations. I think there is, and with respect to this issue over uh, Trump's enemy list in Congress and trying to get those records, some real separation of powers issues um, uh, because members of Congress have their own autonomy. They have their own immunity. They have their own general counsel. They have their own protections and they're supposed to be treated as a co-equal branch of government and not to have an executive branch dictator gathering their metadata. And when we talk about metadata, you've heard me mention that metadata has become a very important thing in modern day litigation. Popak, you want to talk briefly about metadata? Yeah, we use it all the time in discovery and, and really it's, it's at the forefront of what you and I do in our civil cases, but of course, federal um, criminal investigations by the FBI and others use it as well. And it is the embedded electronic information about a particular document that is not seen by the human eye, but if but a computer investigative forensic analysis will reveal. Every document has an electronic signature that when it's, at least if it's, if, if it's created electronically, if it's, of course, somebody's using a yellow pad and a piece of paper, there's no metadata. That's good old fashioned uh, analog information, but it, everything else in our life is really electronic. And there is a, a, an electronic um, uh, watermark on it that talks about who the author is, when the document was last changed, who, where was it sent, where, and all of that is really important to lawyers like Ben and I and to the government investigators, because I, don't, I just don't wanna get the hard static document. I wanna know its history, its origins, who's seen it, who's edited it, when was it last edited, who made an edit to it, has it been forged in any way, shape or form, has it been changed over time if that's important to the case. And all of that is embedded in the metadata that is, is part of what you subpoena when you ask for documents and information. But it's also very revealing because there's privacy issues related to it, just as just as when they investigate where your, your cell phone's been used with cell, cell phone tower um, information, metadata is revealing in a way that the user may not even understand at the time that they're creating the document. Yeah, and it may even tell where you are. I mean, you know, the, the, just because, you know, the government asks, you know, tell me where you're, where you're living and where you're located, right? The specific say, you don't have to tell them everywhere you go every second of the day you know, and give them a full accounting of every aspect of what, you, of what you're doing. And for all you know, that you've had certain documents analyzed by a lawyer. Um, and so there may reveal attorney-client yeah. privileged communications Im- embedded, in, embedded in metadata. But ultimately, you know, one of the things that the Trump DOJ wanted to know is with respect to specific documents, they wanted to know the, the underlying history of the documents to determine if um, anybody uh, were, you know, was leaking these documents. What, what are these documents? These are documents that showed that Trump engaged in, the, you know, in, in the crime, yeah. you know, in various criminal activities. The, the underlying, you know, we're piecing this together and you and I will talk more about it. It's like a jigsaw puzzle and every day we get a new piece. It looks like the bull BS cover story for the mole hunt 
looking for the leaker that that the, the Trump thought gave him the power or the authority to do this, at least in the in the context of the uh, reporters, is um, former federal FBI agent or FBI director Comey, and the Hillary emails. I mean, your our followers and listeners are probably thinking, "Oh God, we're back to the Hillary email server again." Yeah, but but that was the. BS cover story to get a federal magistrate to issue the secret subpoena. And, and, and it really is secret. CNN has reported on itself that it, it was in a six month secret battle. It was secret because the federal magistrate gagged them from talking about the lawsuit in any way, shape or form. Even the powers that be that own and publish the general counsel of CNN was even kept in the dark on many aspects of, of the litigation because, and we're going to talk about state secrets and all of that, but, but that went on. But I want, to, I want to approach two things that you talked about that I found really interesting. And you're right. There are two different issues engendered by the exact same uh, bad behavior of, of subpoenaing off of your enemy list, whether that be uh, reporters or elected officials. Um, uh, and in your comment about what the federal prosecutors who were then working under Sessions and Barr really should have done. And, and to remind our listeners, when we, when we were last under a corrupt administration, as probably less corrupt than this one, under Richard Nixon, there were patriots and people with moral conscience within the Justice Department, including attorney generals and acting attorney generals who resigned rather than do the bidding of the president, in this case, Nixon. Some didn't, some got indicted um, as a result, uh, which is what's gonna happen likely here. But there are people that say, no, I'm not going to do that. I took an oath to be a federal prosecutor or an FBI agent, and I'm not going to do that. That does not appear to have happened here. And that is very troubling, and we're going to get to the bottom of it one way or the other through the Inspector General investigation, the House investigation, or just or just uh, lawsuits. We're going to get to the bottom of this. But the principle of going after the press in a society that whose bedrock constitutional principles are free press and First Amendment is terribly troubling. We've, we've got to find a way to reinstall the guardrails that Trump spent four years trying to trample over and destroy to get to make sure our democracy is protected from the next crazy tyrant who tries to take that office. No doubt. And, you know, you start thinking about some of these pretexts and these crazy conspiracies, you know, and the, you know, the, the, the Trump and Trumpers focus on these things. I mean, you have uh, you know, from the, the Hillary Clinton emails, you know, and then the, the the voting that Hugo Chavez in Venezuela and then somehow bamboo in, in China manipulated, you know, that there's these manipulations and all these kind of mainstream QAnon theories. And then, you know, throwing, you know, all they want to talk about is is Hunter Biden emails. And like, Every we day. can look at this and be like, this is utterly ridiculous. But it has this purpose of trying to completely not just undermine our laws, but also to then weaponize these fake um, uh, conspiracy theories that are created by the far right um, or exaggerated to such degrees as to take something that that's a non-issue and bring it to some ridiculous lengths and then actually 
utilize that to get subpoena power to then actually go after people and attack people and use it for pretextual purposes. You know, Popak, I'm representing now, and I put this out on uh, Twitter, I'm representing a secret, a retired Secret Service agent. And all of these right wing, um, you know, magazines and, and online papers, you know, basically said that this guy was involved in, you know, helping Hunter Biden go from hotel to hotel and that he helped, you know, Hunter on his binges, you know, and they just printed the guy's name and, and his photo, you know, and one thing, the guy was retired. The Secret Service agent was retired at the time and had never even met Hunter Biden before, never even met Hunter Biden, yet alone text message Hunter Biden. And you have all of these, you know, crazy right wing, you know, papers, you know, it was the Washington Examiner, you've got Breitbart, you know, you got I was speaking to a reporter the other day from New York Post and, and, and she's like, well, I understand why your client would like to distance himself from Hunter Biden, but we will publish the general denial. It's like my client was a superb Secret Service agent who gave his life to law enforcement. He retired in April of 2018. There are fabricated text messages out there from late May of 2018 that my client never even sent and never even met Hunter Biden to begin with. And they run with this incredibly crazy narrative and it's it's weaponizing these conspiracies with real world ramifications. Yeah, look, uh, uh, if you go back in in our history, yellow journalism, there's a reason it was called that, and and so called newspapers used to run all sorts of, I mean, crazy crazy stories in the 1800s and 1900s against political candidates, accusing them from out of wedlock, children and and affairs and drug use and all sorts of things. And when I was a kid and I'd read these because I was a history buff, I'd be like, wow, that was a really crazy time. Um, you know, too, too bad we don't live in that time now. We do. And and these things that you've mentioned, these, I, I won't, I'm not gonna give them the honor of being called a newspaper or a, news, a, a legitimate news gathering organization, any of these Washington Times or, or uh, Examiner or Newsmax or whatever the heck it is. You know, this is just tabloid journalism at its worst. When I was a kid and I used to wait in line at the supermarket, you know, the National Enquirer used to have all these crazy headlines about four-headed baby and aliens landing in, in Minnesota. I mean, it, it's just nuts. And now they've just done that. And their content is the political ramblings and conspiracy theories of crazy people and QAnon. And, and of Russia. And, and of, of Russia. Oh, and of our enemies against of our enemies against our country. I keep saying this and, and people just sort of nod and their their eyes glaze over it, but the Russians and the Chinese are using all of these crazy theories through bots on social media and fake websites and fake social media accounts because they want to divide and conquer the United States. And they love, they love fomenting the, 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 the disagreement and discontent between whatever this Republican party has become and legitimate Democrats, because all of that makes us a weaker country. And that's great for our communist enemies. Popak, you a Yankee fan or a Met fan or, a or what, what? it's like going to a Yankee game and you know, you may have differences with the person sitting next to you, but at the end of the day, 
if you're a Yankee fan and the other person's a Yankee fan, you both want the Yankees to you both want the Yankees to win. You may have disagreements of the order. You may have disagreements of the order. You may have disagreements of the, you know, of, of which player is the best player on the team. You may have disagreements with managerial decisions that are being made. But at the end of the day, you root for the Yankees. You know, here it would be like going to the Yankee game and half of the team is rooting for the Mets. Half the team is rooting for the other team. And not only that, but they're trying to like distract the players. They're throwing food at the players. It's like, what are you doing? Like, it's so transparently helping the other side. Why are you doing that? That description sounded like an NBA game, an NBA finals game. But no, no, I, I don't I don't get it. And I don't get the world in which I you and I can just observe. You and I can just observe and provide healthy criticism and critique through our eyes for our followers and listeners. But I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell the people that like us that I smack my forehead on a regular basis about the world that I now live and operate in. I want to talk about two things now as we're focused on the DOJ. I want to talk about one thing that the DOJ I think is doing good. So I'll start with that. I like to start with good news first. Um, uh, And then I want to talk about something that I don't, I, I don't agree with what the DOJ is doing, but I want to pick your brain, Popak, if there's something, uh, there's another option, you know, the DOJ could have done. So what do I like that the DOJ is doing? Well, I like that Attorney General Garland has stated that the Department of Justice is going to step up their enforcement of voting rights protection. They are going to double the size Um, of their voter rights enforcement uh, division. And what this means is that with all the various, you know, states out there who may be passing illegal uh, laws that violate the Constitution, the federal Constitution, and other federal laws that provide for, uh, you know, equal access to voting and, and do not discriminate against individuals. You mean 14 states since May is what you're talking about? Yeah, 14 states since May, you know, and the list is growing. When states look at what happened with the cyber ninjas, remember, Popak, this is, here's my, here, I have so many issues with the right GKP, the craziness, but remember, they could fail so big in failures that should just, destroy people's careers and that they should never even surface like this cyber ninja thing by all accounts the cyber ninja and the most embarrassing fucking thing that you could ever do to have these con artists from florida um have them fly in to arizona who have never conducted an audit before have no clue what they're doing tamper with machines not be able to prove every anything make a whole mockery of the voting system literally everything democrats and frankly republicans with some common sense in arizona predicted was going to happen not the republicans who were in the state legislature who invited these crazies to show up but they destroyed it and and not only not only is the, is the GQP not embarrassed by that? 
they want the cyber ninjas to go to every state. They're like, let's get cyber ninjas over here. Let's get cyber ninjas in that state. They love failure. They swim in failure. I got a new one for you. Speaking of the cesspool of failure they're swimming in. Did you read in the last uh, last day on Twitter that some Arizona state elected official said that if Merrick Garland, our federal department of justice attorney general for the united states if his department of justice comes after them for the arizona fraud it he is going to find himself in an arizona jail this is what this is what this elected this is how this elected official thinks the world operates well you've got the elected official also was it in washington or or oregon you know uh, one of the gqp members who literally opened the door um, and let uh, insurrectionists into the Capitol building, um, you know, and that person since been disbanded and, um, and, and not permitted to ever hold that position again. But really nothing surprises me with this GQP, but it does shock me, you know, again, a little bit on a tangent with the cyber ninjas. It's like, they're, they love failure. I mean, it's like, why do they like Trump? Cause he's the biggest fucking failure in the world. All they want to do, and I think when you view their actions through this lens, you know, you have to say, okay, it makes sense. They're done with America. They don't give a fuck about America anymore. In fact, they don't care if America burns. As long as during their life, though, that they could basically maintain their privilege for the remainder of their life. That's all they care about. Let me ask you something on on this tangent that we're on. Then we're going to get back to good news, which is a more muscular uh, support for the Voting Rights Act by uh, the Department of Justice under Garland. This I don't understand. No one can, can debate because it's just an immutable fact that over the next 20, 30, 50 years, America is getting browner, blacker, more diverse. These are all good things. And, and that whites, like you and me, are going to be not in the minority, but we're going to be considerably less important to the electorate over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. We're talking about the death rattle of a Republican party who's going to try to cling to getting white men to vote for them. Why don't, I'm not asking this rhetorically, I want to, I want to get your opinion. How do you base a party on the failed strategy of continuing to attract white men to vote for you in national office? How do you not know that that is a losing gamble over the next lifetime and generation? How do you not know that? I, I point you to South Africa and I point you to apartheid. And I point you through the fact that there you had a white minority from 1948 until the early 1990s who fixed and rigged um, the entire institutional structure so that a very small group of white privileged individuals could rule over a country that had a significantly larger um, black population. Um, And I think the calculation that was made here um, is to create an apartheid style state in in America. I think that they genuinely say, look, we're never going to win. I agree with you, Popak. They go, we're never going to win again. We we, we can't win fair. And in fact, there are some 
uh, Republican legislatures who have said that quiet part out loud. When I was interviewing Gabriel Sterling um, out in Georgia, who runs their election systems, I confronted him with a statement made by one of the leaders in one of the uh, one of the counties that are Republican. And she said it. She goes, we're never going to win again unless we take serious action, you know, to 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 do to to engage in conduct like we're doing. So I think that there is a deeper issue here that the Republicans do want to set up in a, you know, an apartheid style. It's a loaded term apartheid, but an apartheid style uh, way that they can maintain control um, uh, through kind of by rigging the institutions around them. And frankly, at the Supreme Court level, one of the problems we have to deal with is that all of these laws. So when Merrick Garland, you know, goes and, and files a lawsuit, it takes time for that lawsuit to work its way up. We've talked in the past about how that goes from a district court, the first court it gets filed in, um, to the Court of Appeals, the next level, and then eventually to the Supreme Court. And we see here with a six to three vote that exists right now with six people appointed by Republican administrations, three of them appointed by Trump. Um, it, you know, I, I don't feel good or comfortable that any of these efforts, even if they're pursued, these enforcement actions will be allowed by the Supreme Court and not be struck down by the Supreme Court. Yeah, um, to me, if they had. You see, the federal courts, to, to some extent, I was surprised, but happy. I was so nervous when Trump was filing those crazy bullshit lawsuits right. that felt- the federal judges were going to act the same way as some of these state legislatures. And then how some of these at the federal level, the way these Congress members and senators acted. But see, the thing is, is that there was no law for these GQP judges to even hang their hat on. Well, well, you mentioned now this before, the, 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 good, the, the thing that we had in our favor, the thank God moment, is that Trump could not, back to your lawyer point, right? The power of the pen that we started this, this, this podcast with. Fortunately, Trump could not get legitimate lawyers from legitimate law firms to support his position and be his advocates in court. So he, he was left with the, the bottom of the proverbial barrel with the Sidney Powells of the world and these local schmokel solo practitioners who, who like, you know, the best thing that ever happened to them was to get the president as their client for 10 minutes. These were not the American lawyer, Mount Rushmore of, of legal brain trust. So, so that we are a gatekeeper. The legal profession is a gatekeeper. If you and I and top lawyers stay on the sidelines and don't go rush to go help a crazy like Trump, he'll have problems navigating, even he'll have problems navigating a court system, even when he has his own judges that he's facing. Because even his own judges were like slapping their foreheads going, this is like a clown show. This is a dumpster fire and a clown show. And, and nothing you're telling me makes any sense. Get out of my courtroom. Thank God. Thank God he didn't get the Williams and Connolly, the Wilmer Hales, the Scadden Arpses, the Sidley and Austins of the world to join his charade and argue because that they are good lawyers. They are competent lawyers. Absolutely. And, and, and the, one of the concerns though, obviously is as they attempt to change these state laws, you know, they're saying, well, 
how do we basically institutionalize our cheating and get it affirmed through a kind of sneaky process while we keep ourselves in power. And that's why we're seeing a lot of these, you know, uh, these, these voter initiatives that are designed to suppress the vote. But we will keep you updated on the DOJ's enforcement actions. Well, I want to um, say, on- don't leave it yet. Don't leave it yet. And I want to say, because I want to make sure we're giving some good substance to, um, to our listeners. The, the, the GQP, which I'm finally getting right, the um, the Republican-led legislatures in 20 in 14 states have passed 22, what they call voter integrity, election integrity laws, was just the code word for voter suppression. The Department of Justice and the Civil Rights Division under Trump in four years brought exactly zero, zero investigations and prosecutions and lawsuits to enforce the Voting Rights Act. I don't think that's ever happened in a four year period other than Trump. But now the Department of Justice is back, just as Biden is telling the, the world that, that, that the leader of democracy is back in the United States. Merrick Garland will bring and is committed to bringing a muscular prosecution and investigation under the Voting Rights Act in every way he can. They're gonna prosecute voter intimidation. They're gonna challenge every state and how it, it, all these new laws, and if, and if these new laws have the impact, the disparate impact that, I, that we know, you and I know that they do, on minorities, on black and brown people, they're gonna call them out on that. And those legislatures and state officials are gonna have to go to Washington and justify these positions. And when they can't, then there's gonna be lawsuits applying that strict scrutiny standard that you and I have already talked about. The highest level of constitutional analysis is gonna be applied. But it's going to be three, four, five election cycles before those cases make their way through. But we have adults in the room in the Department of Justice, led by Merrick Garland, Lisa Monaco, his number two, and the head of the Civil Rights Division, Kristen Clark, and somebody that people won't even think about, but is really, really important here. And that's Vanita Gupta. Vanita Gupta is the number three lawyer in the Department of Justice under Garland. He brought her in especially. She has spent her whole life, her whole life, trying to protect voting rights. I can't think of a better group than Monaco, Gupta, and Garland to now resuscitate the Department of Justice and its role in protecting voting rights. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So that's the good news about the Department of Justice. There's lots of other good news. Merrick Garland's a great lawyer. It's great justice. Um, and he is going to bring integrity back. He's the perfect person for the job. And of course, you may recall Justice, Justice Garland at the time was President Obama's selection to be on the Supreme Court, and he should have been um, a Supreme Court justice, but for uh, Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans blocking it for literally um, you know, hundreds of days um, under the pretext that during an election year, um, the president does not have the right to appoint it, to appoint a Supreme Court judge. Then, of course, very swiftly, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed um, and as the election was about to take place um, with Trump Biden, 
um, within a matter of what was it, 10 days, 12 days, you know, two weeks, they appointed a whole new justice and went through a process that's supposed to take, uh, you know, months with hearings and significant due diligence. Um, they passed it immediately. And now we have a 6 3 uh, with uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, being appointed. By the way, if you were, and I, I don't, I, I'm not asking this in a joking way. If you were lucky enough in your career, this was a goal of yours to be nominated for a Supreme Court position, right? Let's say it happened. Uh, Judge Mysalis is going to be elevated, hopefully, to the U.S. Supreme Court. That'd be great. I'd love to see that, by the way. And, and, and it was being done in a sort of underhanded, tilted and rigged system where you were going to be crammed in in 20 days with like very little hearing. And it was obvious that uh, it was being done um, in, in, a, in a really um, undermining and politically terrible and morally terrible way. Let me ask you something. Would you take that position or would you step down and say, you know what? I don't want it this way. I have moral and political convictions that are bigger than me just getting on the Supreme Court. What do you think? Well, it's an easy choice for me because I would never want to be a judge. And that's just, that's just me personally. So it's an easy way to cop out of the question. Um, uh, but the reason that I don't want to uh, be a judge in many senses is because I think judges should have to respond to questions like you asked. In, very, in a very deliberate way where I'm more of an activist, I'm more of an advocate, and I would want to um, ensure um, that, uh, that my side, which I believe is the one that's pro-democracy, you know, wins. Um, but I would, want, I would want to have a process in place um, that is consistent with, with those values. So in terms of a personal decision that I make, I don't know. But I think the fact that she didn't hesitate for, for even a moment tells you the type of judge she's going to be and the type of justice she's going to be. You can't be a judge. You'd have to give up cursing. Yeah, I could not be. Trust me. I think through our legal AFs and through the Midas Touch podcast, I've appropriately disqualified myself from, <laughs> from becoming from becoming a judge. I couldn't even imagine um, being at a, a, a hearing and seeing uh, them playing back all of the uh, the, the, the curses. Um, but you know, it's 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 that type of passion, though, that we all have different callings. Not everyone has to be a judge. Not everyone has to be a justice. Not everyone has to. But what we're doing to fight for pro democracy, we want judges and justices, though, to have to be faithful ultimately, first and foremost, to the Constitution and a justice who is aware of the unusual circumstance. I could tell you what I would definitely not do, Popak. The moment Donald Trump or somebody like that, if even if it was a Biden on my side, um, used me as a prop right. in the political campaign on the balcony um, and compromised my integrity and made me look like a fool, that gesture alone, I would, yeah. I would bow out. I would say, I totally agree. With that, that. That's a disgrace and an embarrassment. That's some, like, that's some fascist Mussolini, you know, type propaganda. And I would never let myself be used for that. And if I unwittingly, you know, who knows, you know, the circumstances. I get it. You show up to the White House, which you're probably uncomfortable for anyway, and then you go up. You're with the president, and let's just say 
he tricked you into do, you know, going on the balcony and doing the photo op. I momently right there would withdraw and basically say, I can't be a part of this. This is disgusting. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And she didn't. And she was at the White House with that super spreader event. And she allowed herself, as you said, to be used as for political theater and as a prop in a partisan way for a nonpartisan position, or at least one that she we claim that's nonpartisan. But the Oregon House of Representative I referenced before, just so everybody knows his name, who was ousted is Republican Representative Mike Nearman. Um, it was a 59 to one vote to oust him. And it was the first time in state history a sitting Oregon lawmaker um, was expelled. So it was Oregon at Washington. Going to the bad yeah. thing that I think the DOJ um, is is doing. So the, ju- the Justice Department, um, through its filings, demonstrated that it was going to keep fighting um, to defend Donald Trump um, in a case relating to a rape allegation. Um, the allegation was by Gene Carroll. Um, Gene Carroll had accused Trump previously of uh, rape and sexually assaulting her. Donald Trump was asked a question about the allegations at a press conference while he was giving a presidential press conference. Um, he made a statement that denied the allegations and also went further and talked about her and made comments about her and who she is um, and, and, you know, and bashed her in, in typical Trumpian fashion um, and her lawsuit against him because the rape and sexual assault allegations do not meet the current statute of limitations was a defamation lawsuit for what he said during the press conference. So I want to be clear that it's not a case about representing Donald Trump on the accusation of sexual assault, um, the Department of Justice's position in its legal brief is the following. When members of the White House media ask then-President Trump to respond to Ms. Carroll's serious allegations of wrongdoing, their questions were posed to him in his capacity as president. Elected public officials can and often must address allegations regarding personal wrongdoing that inspire doubt about their suitability for office. Um, and so that's the, that's the claim about why. Um, uh, now, let's be clear. She is suing, by suing the president, she is suing the Department of Justice. She's, she is suing the United States government, though, who is indemnifying the president um, as, uh, you know, based on when the conduct took place, um, even though it's suing Donald Trump, the, the sure government. Have, him, though. I'm not sure. What would you say? I'm not. They may be defending him. I don't think they're indemnifying. The government's not going to write a check under even under this scenario that we're talking about. The government's not going to write the check to and I know the lawyers that are handling the case. They're not going to write the check to Robbie Kaplan's firm and 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 Carol. They may be defending him, which is what they, which is what they've been doing. But I don't think they're indemnifying him. It'd be a good question, right? There are two duties. Obviously, there's a duty to indemnify. I mean, whether or not they apply here is up for discussion, but a duty to defend, um, provide legal representation to somebody um, during the course and scope. And we've talked about these issues in prior legal apps. And then a duty to indemnify, which is actually pay uh, the settlement judgment, you know, or, or, or otherwise. Um, what's going on here, Popak? Yeah. Way? This, this one's interesting. I, I'm not going to take a different tack than you, but I have a slightly different 
analysis, and it, and it and it harks back to what you and I talked about a couple of episodes ago when we talked about the uh, the Lafayette Park issue. Look, 99.99% of what Biden has done is to reverse the policies of Trump in every way, shape, and form at every department, internationally, nationally, domestic, and otherwise. He's done it by executive orders, hundreds of them that he issued in the first few days, and everything, everything else. However, there have been already a couple of places where his Department of Justice has, has decided in looking at the underlying constitutional or legal issues that they're gonna to have to hold their nose and side in a way with the, with the original Trump position for that particular legal doctrine. So in the Lafayette Park clearing that we talked about a couple of episodes ago, it was they were protecting not the craziness of Trump making all the protesters lay down on the ground or be stomped to death by, by military and police as he made his way with an upside down Bible to the church. The principle is, does the president of the United States have the right to define his own security, especially in and around the White House, yes or no? And, and that shouldn't turn on how crazy the occupant of the White House is, and that's the Biden argument. Here, they're sort of saying the same thing. There is a law, it's called the Westfall Act. It's technically the Federal Employee Liability Reform and Tort Compensation Act of 1988 that the president as a federal employee falls under. Back in the 80s, there was this whole big movement of what we call tort reform, which was Republicans, again, thinking that trial lawyers like you and I were out of control and that we were improperly obtaining jury verdicts on behalf of our injured uh, clients, and they wanted to take that away. So they did all sorts of reforms. And one of them that they did is they, they made a law that's now called the Westfall Act, that if you're a federal employee and you're sued while engaged in your official duties, if while you were engaged in your official duties, you did something bad and you're sued civilly as a result of that, you're going to have immunity and you're going to have protection as long as it's while you're engaged in your official duties. So that is the 40-year law that the Justice Department, the Biden Justice Department, had to decide which side of that law they were going to be on. And they ultimately came down on, as unsavory as this is, that we're going to have to side with Trump on this, not because it's Trump, because we hate everything about him, but because we think at the end of the day, he's right about the Westfall Act and its application to a sitting president. And because as you framed it, Ben, Trump, in response at a press conference from the media, is where he allegedly defamed Miss, Mrs. Carroll. They, the Biden administration is going to continue the same analysis in front of the court. They just filed their brief, and they're going to say that should be covered by the Westfall Act. Do they want to really defend Trump? No. But what are, what's going through their minds? For every Trump, there's an occasional Clinton who does something like deny Monica Lewinsky's affair in a press conference. And they're not thinking 2021, they're thinking the next hundred years, what law, and you and I have talked about making bad law versus good law, what law are we making not dependent on the sitting occupant, but on future history, you know, future 
future occupants. And that's the reason why, and everybody, I know I've seen the Twitter comments and, and I, and, and friends of friends of the show and of your, yours and mine, like Katie Fang, I know has taken a position about this is ridiculous. The government should back out and let, and let Carol have her day. And the problem is not them applying the Westfall act. This is a two-step problem because if the federal government is successful, even under Biden in getting into this case, and making the case now read uh, Gene Carroll versus the United States of America. The United States of America has sovereign immunity for many of the torts that she's suing for. So why don't we talk about sovereign immunity then? Yeah, I mean, so at its most basic, they can't be sued for it. <laughs> so they are immune. Um, and there are different reasons why um, a, a entity may or may not have immunity. Um, but in specific cases, you know, in order to uh, function as the federal government here, you know, in order to be the United States government and the fact that they have the ability to pass laws um, that give themselves the, these, you know, these types of powers, you know, the government cannot be sued for certain things. And this is just one of those examples where there would be total, you know, where there would be total immunity, where it's been determined that to sue, to sue the sovereign here, in this case, the United States government, you know, would impede its ability to operate, um, you know, that it would allow all individuals to sue the government for every grievance, you know, that they may have. Um, and, you know, this idea of sovereign immunity has developed historically over time. A lot of our laws are rooted back to British law, but the idea being here, you know, the government, the government has to operate and has to function for the people and you can't sue it. So, so the problem is not the one we're really focused on here, which is does the Westfall Act cover Trump and his actions? The problem is if it does, does he then enjoy sovereign immunity so that her entire lawsuit is going to be uh, dismissed. And here's a question for you, and I don't know the answer to it, so I'm, I'm sorry if I'm, se if I'm setting you up. We used to call that a hospital pass, right? Throw a pass over the middle and you just get clobbered by the defenders. So I know in state government, a sovereign is the state government and the legislature, and they can waive sovereign immunity, and they often do in certain cases. Who has the power, do you think, to waive sovereign immunity at the federal level? Is it the president or is it Congress? Well, you know, you have, um, uh, I, I think Congress would have to pass a federal law um, and there would be, you know, for example, there's uh, a federal torts, uh, you know, federal torts claims act um, that circumscribes specific times and instances where and you can sue a federal government for, you know, for, for different, you know, conduct. Um, and if there's not an expressed law that allows for the waiver. Um, but remember, I mean, for that law, it, it, it requires, it requires the president's signature, you know, so, so Congress would pass, you know, the, the, the law would pass the bill, the president would sign it and make it into law. It would become part of the, you know, the, the, the federal, federal laws, federal they regulation. May here. They may, they may, uh, that's their next step. You know, Gene Carroll's advisors and lawyers, if this were to, if they were to lose and the government was able to come in and assert sovereign immunity, and I think they have to assert it. So maybe the Department of Justice 
maybe the Department of Justice elects not to assert sovereign immunity, but it'd be weird because why are they having the Westfall Act apply and, and let them intercede if they weren't planning to do the second part? But yeah, even they're then, definitely going to assert sovereign yeah. immunity because so then, that's why they're. So then Congress and the president and Biden and Biden, Biden on the trail when he was campaigning came out in favor of Gene Carroll. So I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't a friendly bill floating around that would make its way through Congress and land on his desk that he would sign that would make an exception to sovereign immunity in her case. I'm surprised there wasn't some other creative solution here because to me, what was just unique and disturbing was the affirmative intervention by by the Department of Justice in the Trump uh, White House, you know, and that the lawsuit wasn't even brought in that way and that the Department of Justice could have just not intervened. Like where I'm surprised is why couldn't the current DOJ, you know, just basically make a comment that it preserves, you know, that it's not going to intervene, but basically reserves the right to intervene and doesn't waive any future ability. Like why couldn't there be a creative solution or is that just creative? Yeah, I don't think that works. If you're going to take the position, which I do, that if you've made if you've made the election to defend the Westfall Act, that they can't sit on the sidelines for fear of making bad law. Once you make that decision, you got to intervene and you got to defend the law, even if you hate the occupant for which the law is being used as a defense. Got it. Well, we'll follow up. We'll follow up with everybody on that. Let you know where that's where that's headed. Um, and we will keep you apprised. One of the things I want to talk about to Popak switching gears here for a second is asset forfeiture, um, which is often pursued by the United States Marshals under the DOJ um, of actually in criminal cases and criminal investigations, um, seizing property, seizing money um, uh, that are a fruit from the poisonous tree, as as we would say, you know, in, in the law. In other words, th- that come from the illegal acts and that people who are arrested uh, upon a showing, you can't just steal people's stuff upon making the showing that um, uh, that certain property, goods, money comes from an illegal purpose, illegal design, um, that the government seizes it. And then uh, it puts the burden back on a criminal defendant to actually have to go through an entire separate procedure, almost separate and apart from their criminal case in an asset forfeiture action. And not just the owner, and not just the owner, not just the crim, the criminal, the also co-owners of the property. Think about the innocent husband or wife, and who really is innocent. And there's actually an innocent owner defense. They come into court as well and they go, I had no idea my husband was money laundering and I shouldn't lose my house, my car, my yacht, my boat as a result. And if they can make a showing and, they have, and, it's, and as you said, the burden is on them, that spouse, family member, co-investor, partner, whatever, is going to have at least that portion of what is the government wants forfeited to the government uh, reserved to them. So it's not a 100% forfeiture. But yeah, that's how that you've explained the process properly. And there are very strict requirements about asset forfeiture um, in terms of the dates and deadlines in which to file your oppositions to the asset forfeiture proceeding um, to initiate an asset forfeiture opposition to the goods and property or money 
being seized. Um, there are a lot of articles out there and lots of people out there who are very critical of an asset forfeiture process. A lot of people saying it's a lot of government overreach um, in seizing property and getting this leverage um, in cases over uh, over individual defendants or over people without really making significant or substantial showings or you know just kind of bullying a judge to approve it. Uh, one of the interesting questions, though, Popak, that's come up now, though, um, is asset forfeiture related to Bitcoin? You know, I know we may geek out a little bit here, um, but the origins of Bitcoin, um, you know, uh, like a lot of great fortunes that kind of come from, you know, uh, kind of dark, uh, improper uses of, of the Bitcoin. Um, and oftentimes Bitcoin was being used uh, originally, you know, this was almost, you know, almost 10 years ago at this point, as part of what was called the Silk Road, basically a dark web network of uh, money laundering, of, of, of uh, money laundering money from uh, drug profits, um, you know, and other criminal activity and weapons exchanges, um, and then hiding the money by making it part of the blockchain. You know, and the blockchain is basically where Bitcoin uh, attaches to in a digital way. If you want to make it, you want to create a physical image of it. And so when you hear about what the blockchain is, it is kind of this series of codes that um, that give the actual coin or the token its own unique identity that can't be that can't be copied and is very is impossible to trace. So that's why it was- Here's how I think about it or how I've come to grips with blockchain and cryptocurrency, right? So blockchain for our listeners is the electronic ledger book of all transactions buy and sell that's recorded electronically on a, on a chain that extends into the infinite horizon. So if we get to the world, which we're quickly getting to, where all transactions from your food purchase at the local supermarket to your acquisition of your house, to buying your college tuition for your children, to buying healthcare and, and, and everything else that goes to a business's purchases is all recorded in a digital way. We're back to the digital world now on a digital ledger book just like, you know, 100 years ago, you pulled out a pen, a quill pen, and you wrote down accounting. This is all done electronically. And then there's a chain that's created so you can track back every purchase and sale in the world onto the blockchain. Cryptocurrency is the currency that, that is used on the blockchain. Yes, dollars can be recorded there as well, but block, blockchain is uh, the cryptocurrency like Bitcoin is recorded onto the, block, onto the blockchain as a transaction in a unique coded way. And that's why, as you said, the dark web loved it and continues to love it. And this is the problem we're having with the legitimization of cryptocurrency, whether it's Dogecoin, Ether, uh, Ether or, or Bitcoin or any of them. There's hundreds, there's now hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these things that are that we'll talk about it at another time, how they're created. But the, the problem is they they have always been the fancy of the criminal underworld. And, and the question that, that our society is struggling with and regulators around the world, banking, currency, 
and, and, um, and stock exchange regulators around the world are struggling with is how do you legitimize and regulate it and make it normal? Look, there, there's no secret that one of the reasons that the internet took off and became as um, robust and, and used today by legitimate normal people is because of things like pornography that, that was driving the internet and helping grow it and server farms before you and I caught on. And it's also a good place to go buy books and, uh, and you know, dry cleaning. So there's always been a dark side to some of our technology. The question is, how do you move it into legitimate, the legitimate world um, and that's our world is now our world of, of legitimacy is struggling with how to bring Bitcoin uh, into legitimacy. So one of the interesting things that arise here is when the government seizes the assets, um, it sells them. And so the questions also become here um, when uh, what obligations should the U.S. Marshal Service have of being market actors and there are stories of them selling the Bitcoin at certain points where they made nominal amounts of money, but had they held it two months or three months more, it could have been you know tens of millions of dollars. And so ultimately, where the legal scholars tend to you know uh, err is that the, the the government and the U.S. marshals are not market actors in, with respect to selling Bitcoin. Their job is to seize it and at the appropriate time sell it without disregard, uh, without regard to becoming like stock pickers. That's not the goal. Although it would be an interesting concept once it is seized, if we do want to talk about maximizing the profit for them to maybe think a little more sophisticatedly oh. about it and have positions of people who would invest it appropriately. But what do you think that. about it? They could appoint, well, that's okay. So the, the thing that's been in the news, what I, which I think is motivating our, our chat about this is that the federal, the FBI, and it's not the first time, but it, it, it is an, an amazing development, was able to recover the entire Bitcoin ransom that was paid by the Colonial Pipeline uh, uh, company uh, just uh, two or three weeks ago, uh, which shut down the oil supply on the eastern seaboard for a good six or seven days, leading to an increase in gas prices. So we all read about that and went, wow, that's crazy. They've attacked our infrastructure. These bad guys that are probably Russian is what we believe, um, led by Putin. So it's a Putin-led operation that led to the shutdown of our oil, our oil distribution network on the eastern seaboard. That alone is scary. But the FBI, within record time, was able to recover the 2.5 or whatever billion dollars of Bitcoin. And, and the result was on the Bitcoin market, it dropped by like 30% because it scared the crap out of the dark web who thought Bitcoin was impenetrable and would never be able to be seized uh, by the federal government. Fortunately for the federal government, they found the wallet it literally an electronic wallet, like the Apple wallet that everybody carries on their iPhones. There's a wallet that carries the Bitcoin and they were able, and that has obvious vulnerability to being hacked by good guys like the FBI. And they found the wallet and they found the password through sleuthing and investigation. And they were able to crack it and collect back and steal back <laughs> that which that, uh, that was stolen. So you could set up then to your point, Instead of having FBI agents who are obviously not MBAs and they're not in the job of 
of market participants, you could hire special referees and masters who know what the heck they're doing in cryptocurrency and other assets like real estate, the specialist, and have them have delegated authority through the government to go sell. Because, you know, anything could be forfeited, an apartment building, a $100 million apartment. I, I mean, I, I can't get too close to it because my law firm is involved with some forfeiture issues related to uh, terrorist organizations um, uh, domestically. And, you know, when if it's a real estate asset of 10, 15, 100 million dollars, that has to be sold. And if it's forfeited to the government, somebody needs to do it. So why not bring in experts who are working for the government on some hourly rate and let them uh, try to maximize the amount of return on forfeited assets? Why not? And that press release was dated Monday, June 7, 2021. Department of Justice seizes $2.3 million in cryptocurrency paid to the ransomware extortionists dark side. This was actually what the Department of Justice named their press release. And it said, quote, there is no place beyond the reach of the FBI to conceal illicit funds that will prevent us from imposing risk and consequences upon malicious cyber actors, said FBI Director Paul Abadi. So that was a interesting new, probably the first of its kind time when the FBI was actually able to go in and kind of seize um, a, a, a ransom of this sort that was they did it tried before. to be. I thought it was the first time too, but when I did the research, they did it before a couple of years ago, but not as publicly. Look, very rarely do you see, you know, turnabout as fair play happen as quickly as this one did. You know, we're all going, I'm just getting my mind around the colonial pipeline being shut down. And all of a sudden, two weeks later, the FBI recovered the entire ransom. So that was, talk about velocity. That was a, you know, an amazing event and a and kudos to the Biden administration to make that happen. Absolutely. And closing out the Midas Touch Legal AF, I want to talk about two Supreme Court actions. The first one I want to talk about is Supreme Court ruling. The next I want to talk about is the Supreme Court that's going, that's agreed to hear a case during its next term. But I want to talk about the Supreme Court in a unanimous decision, which is rare um, these days, where it was 9-0. The Supreme Court ruled against immigrants with temporary status. Popak, can you tell us about this? Yeah, I don't think we're going to see many 9-0 votes on this particular court, especially how, how it's comprised. But, you know, the issue has to do with a um, a status that about 400,000 people in this country hold. It's the uh, Temporary Protected Status, or TPS. And these are people that came to this country from primarily war-ravaged countries, and there's about uh, 12 of them. And they got status to stay in this country, um, protected status to stay in this country, have families, um, work, pay taxes, but the question here is, were they, and this is a hyper-technical term, were they admitted, admitted into the United States to allow them to go through the green card naturalization and permanent residency process? Or did they come in some other way and therefore are not ultimately green card eligible? And so our listeners are probably saying, well, who cares? Um, just give them the green card. They got here. We recognize them. They already went through a lot in their life, having left a war ravaged country. They're now thrown down roots. They've had 
uh, babies and children, and which are mainly, a lot of them are dreamers, the DREAM Act, um, and they're contributing members of our society. Why are we making them go through an extra hurdle? But look, the way the immigration laws are written, the question, and this was the, this is a majority opinion written by Ellen, uh, Elena Kagan. You can't get any more liberal of a Supreme Court justice than that. And even she thinks that under the statutory reading of who is admitted and who is not admitted to allow them to get into the green card line, that they are not technically admitted. Now, she also recognized in the Supreme Court decision that Congress has a role here and that Congress is currently considering to fix this because that's what their job is. If there's a loophole or they can close it and they can pass a law that says, okay, if you're TPS, temporary protected status, and you came in during this period, uh, and, and you're in this country and you've done everything else fine. You're not a felon. You haven't committed any crimes. You've done everything to be a law abiding participant in our democracy. Then we're going to allow you to get into the green card line. We're going to give you a path to citizenship or permanent residency. That is the role of the legislature. The role of the Supreme Court is to rule on the law and to, and to come to terms with whether technically and otherwise the law says that they're allowed to get green card status or not. And, you know, unfortunately for the TPS uh, people, and there's again, a half, almost half a million of them, Kagan and the other eight said that, no, unless there's a law change by the legislature, we're gonna have to um, deny you green card. That doesn't mean they get thrown out of the country. They stay in the country. Their TPS status does not change. And they're allowed to continue to work in this country and contribute. They just don't get permanent residency or ultimately citizenship unless, and they're never going to do this, unless they left the country, went back where they came from. And there's a reason they left where they came from and came back through the front door, if you will, through a proper admitted process and applied. None of them are going to do that. And we wouldn't expect them to do that because that would be barbaric to send people back to places where they're going to be killed. Absolutely. And I think, though, it is going to be hard based on at least the current composition of the Senate um, and uh, the fact that Mitch McConnell said that he will filibuster and block everything and uh, Joe Manchin and Cinema saying that they're not going to fight against the Mitch McConnell use of the filibuster in, in, in such a way that um, I think there won't be legislation passed. But I do think that even though the outcome uh, seems incredibly harsh, it does not mean, as Popak just pointed out, that these individuals are going to be sent back um, to their country anytime soon. And where is Mark? I mean, just to, I, I'm not even joking about this. Where is Marco Rubio? I haven't, I haven't seen hide nor hair of him. He's still a U.S. senator, isn't he, from Florida? And one that came from an immigrant family that came to this country from Cuba. Why isn't, where are we? What world do we live in that people like Marco Rubio don't put politics aside and stand up for what's right and lead the charge? You know, he's always taking these BS positions on immigration when he thinks he's going to run for president. But when it really matters, if 400,000 people, most of which would like to be U.S. citizens one day and have done everything they can to come to this country, where is the moral leadership in the Republican Party? It's completely absent. Complete, completely, utterly absent. Although we can do a whole podcast on that. In fact, we do. It's the Midas Touch podcast with Ben, <laughs> Brett, and Jordy twice a week. I want to I wanna close by talking about this final Supreme Court action. The Supreme Court's going to hear uh, uh, it's the second state secrets 
case um, that they're going to be hearing this one about the FBI allegedly surveilling certain uh, Muslims in the uh, Orange County Muslim uh, community. Uh, just the allegations are on the basis of religion uh, was why um, there was surveillance on these individuals. Um, uh, the United States government cited state secrets. Um, what's going on here? What's the prior case and what are state secrets? Yeah. So, you know, this is always uh, a nettlesome problem because on one hand, and if it wasn't Trump, we probably wouldn't find it so troubling. But on the one hand, the United States government does have the right to protect state, state secrets. And if they are conducting legitimate surveillance operations on citizens or otherwise, the argument is, and the case law is, including a 1953 Supreme Court decision, that they are not required to reveal the full extent of the investigation, because if they do, they will jeopardize um, assets, human assets around the world, including FBI agents and 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 other CIA agents and and um, espionage around the world, and compromise those programs and maybe put people's lives at risk. That's the argument. And if they can't, if they're able to to uh, 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 avoid providing this information under the state secrets uh, doctrine, then the plaintiffs who are suing, like these Muslim Americans in California, their case is going to have to be dismissed because they're not able to get any of the discovery. And that's, we've talked about that before. That's the information that you obtain in the civil process throughout the course of the litigation, whether it be by deposition or documents or metadata, whatever it is, there's a whole period in which you try to develop your case in the United States in advance of a trial. They're not, if they can't get any of that information because it's been blocked by state secrets, their case therefore gets dismissed. So this is about whether their case gets dismissed or not. And there's two state secrets cases that the Supreme Court has taken at the same time, one about Guantanamo Bay and, and this case about the, the, the Muslim Americans. So they are going to be ready in the next term. Remember, we're gonna come into the Supreme Court hiatus, summer hiatus soon, like next week. And then we're not gonna pick up again until the October term uh, this year when they hear oral argument. So they're gonna hear this case, both cases, and we're gonna get a Supreme Court ruling the first time in probably 20 years, if not more, about the application and the extent that the United States government can apply the state secrets doctrine to prevent lawsuits like this from happening in the civil context. What do you think is going to happen in these cases? You know, it's interesting. I think on the, you know, the underlying showing, remember that, a, or when I say remember, I'm, I'm really talking to our listeners. Um, it, the, the, the appellate courts do not take evidence in as part of the record when they're doing their review. They have to make their decision based on a static record developed below at the trial level. I mean, you and I know that, but I want to make it clear to people that listen to us and follow us. The Supreme Court doesn't take testimony. It doesn't swear in witnesses. It doesn't get any new documents submitted to it or information submitted to it. It can only review that which is in front of it that was developed below at, at, the, at the trial level. And I don't know the record really that was developed below. They're going to have to evaluate what the federal judge that looked at the information, the affidavits that were supplied by the government, because that's how they, that's how the, the, the government exercises its alleged right of state secrets doctrine. They file affidavits and they outline 
I mean, as much as they can without revealing state secrets, why they, they in this case, this Muslim surveillance case, they shouldn't be forced to, to provide documentation or information in discovery. Supreme Court's gonna have to look at that record and decide it. But even beyond the record in an individual case, the Supreme Court obviously now has an interest for whatever reason, they've, they've gotten at least four of the justices to agree that it's time to make new pronouncements about the state secrets law. So they, they as a Supreme Court body, they, see as their responsibility, putting more clarity for lower federal court judges on this particular doctrine in the trying times in which we live. So I, I'm not really in a position yet to handicap how it's going to come out. What do you think? Well, you know, I think um, one interesting point is when people know, well, who's arguing these cases, you know, for the government? There's actually a position called the Solicitor General of the United States. And so when the government is a party, it's usually the Solicitor General or the Solicitor General's designee. And the Solicitor General, going back to our theme of Department of Justice, is really other than the um, other than Merrick Garland, the Solicitor General would be basically the top position there who argues in front of the Supreme Court these cases. And so what's interesting, too, is that a lot of these issues may have arisen in past administrations, it takes time for these cases to go up. So a lot of these cases may have been decisions that were made by the Trump Department of Justice. Uh, or even before that, earlier departments of justice, even maybe Obama Department of Justices. But in the line of continuity, the solicitor generals defending the government's position, um, you know, in, in these cases. But I, I tend to think the reason they're taking these cases and knowing the kind of composition and the general view of uh, some of these Republican appointees of taking a robust view of the powers of uh, uh, the president, the executive, the ability to make claims and do things in the interest of national security. Uh, my gut is, is that they're going to take an expansive view of state secrets um, yeah. and basically say, you know, we, we should basically take the government's view of state secrets here and dismiss these actions and that the government should be given uh, yeah. leeway here. But you know, you know why you're right about that? Because I, I had I was remiss. I didn't. I didn't explain fully that the doctrine, the State Secrets Act, is an extension of presidential power. It's the. It, it lies in the executive branch. And you're right. The the Republicans, and especially the Republican appointees, love to find ways to expand the, the presidential powers. And uh, and I think you're also right that they wouldn't be agreeing to take it. They're not. They're not taking it to water down the act, or the doctrine. I agree. Now. Um... I one want to thank one everybody for listening to this edition of Midas Touch Legal AF, but we do have to talk about this Fox News situation of Fox News refusing to air our Midas Touch video called uh, GOP Betrayed America. It features the voices and stories of law enforcement, the insurrection. Um, it tells the story about just what happened during the insurrection. And the point of the video is that it condemns the insurrection and it condemns um, Republicans who want to whitewash or who support the insurrection. 60 seconds, super short, insurrection, bad. Don't vote for people who support insurrection. That's the theme. Uh, it's a very simple ad. 
We tried to get that on Fox. Midas Touch did. Um, usually, when we tr- if if there are issues, someone like a Fox will come back to us and say, "Hey, there's an issue with the copyright, or there's an issue with you know uh, this is maybe too violent, or whatever the whatever their comments are." And then you have an opportunity to fix it, and you know because of the you know the First Amendment, and you know generally you know the these uh, networks um, you know will take your money and play ads that should be played as long as they don't violate the law. Um, and here, this ad clearly does not violate the law. It actually condemns people who violate our most sacred laws. So I thought Fox was actually going to play it. I'm not trying to be naive. We've, we've run other ads on Fox before. And sure, they've come back to us and said, hey, can you make this change? We've made the changes. Um, and then they are. Um, but here, they just ignored us. And then we followed up and then they said, we're rejecting it. No comment, nothing further, just we're rejecting it. Now, networks do have an obligation when it comes to political candidates um, not to refuse them the way they did here. It is true that technically, because we're a political action committee, there's no absolute law that requires Fox to air um, you know, our ads, but it does strike me as something is wrong here. And the question is, is there something legal wrong um, when us as a political action organization, not the podcast, but the political action group wants to operate and, and get its message out pursuant to its underlying business purpose as a political action committee, and then an entity that has dominant market control over conservative voices, over conservative viewers. And again, I hate the term conservative, but under GQP viewers, um, that they deny us the ability to even have a conversation. And so, Popak, uh, is there any chance we have any legal remedy here? Or was our remedy just exposing Fox as being a fascist network and not wanting to show a video that condemns the insurrection? Well, without blowing entirely attorney-client privilege by, by having uh, 20 or 30,000 people <laughs> listen to my advice to you, let, let me frame it this way. You have one of the big four television networks, probably the second largest or first largest, depending upon how you review the ratings, who have a license provided by the federal government under the FCC it's a license. It's not a, it's not a right to be a broadcaster. It's a license provided by the federal government who have denied my client <laughs> wearing that hat, Midas Touch and the pack from, from having an ad. If all, let's do it this way, all networks decide they don't want to run ads from Midas Touch because they don't feel like it. Denying you the ability to broadcast, literally, your point of view. You do podcasts, you do viral videos, and they reach millions of people, but you're not hitting 25 million people, Super Bowl numbers in one 30-second clip the way you would on broadcast television. That's still the power of broadcast television. Yeah, you know, with power- you say, Bobak? But with power comes with responsibility. So whether it's through, and you and I have talked about the problems with the federal- uh, the Federal uh, Communications Commission, the FCC, which regulates TV licenses. Every you can, they can, they can yank a license. They can censure and sanction a broadcaster 
for doing something inappropriate. They can. Will they? Depends on who's in charge. And that's why the Biden administration now being in charge helps. Federal Election Committee Commission, I don't think helps us because as you said, if you were if you were a political candidate, you'd have a you'd have a more leg to stand on. But the avenue of attack has got to be that these are these are commercial organizations that hold licenses at the liberty of the United States through the regulatory process. They're denying you a point of access to that market. And therefore they have committed, and then you and I are gonna have to develop the, the, the cause of action that they have violated. But does it set, if you're asking me, does it sound like that there is a lawsuit in there? Because it's not gonna be the only time they do this to you. You're, you and your brothers are gonna create another amazing, hard-hitting, insightful ad that it should be seen by not, not just the Midas Mighty, shout out to the Midas Mighty, and to the couple of million that see your viral videos, but to the planet and the country writ large. And you could only do that through broadcast television. So I think there is an avenue of attack there. I mean, you think, Paul Pak, you know, to me, it's, it's incredibly far more serious when it's a message like ours, which is the insurrection is bad and they refuse to play it. But just think about if uh, market actors could conspire with other entities here to truly dominate you know, certain areas and crush competition simply because, again, as you state, they have a license or they have access you know, to, to this audience and that they could consolidate or monopolize a specific audience by preventing them from hearing other points of view. Now, ours is pro-democracy, but just imagine if it was, hey, you know, we only want you to try this ice cream. And then another ice cream company says, hey, can you play our ads? No, we don't like your ice cream. You, you, you can't air it on our ad. Do it this way. And it's not so much competition. It's that they control your access to the national public because they hold a one of the four major broadcast licenses. Everybody, we talk about all these other places that people get news and like 70% of a certain demographic in this country get their news from Facebook, which is crazy. But having said, I mean, it's, it's efficient, but it's crazy. But broadcast television still has a, a major role, but let, let, me bring it, let me bring it home this way. And I, this is gonna sound a little bit like science fiction or a Philip Roth novel that never got written, but suppose technology was really advanced the way it is right now, but in the 1930s and 40s. And we were in Nazi Germany and you wanted to run an ad to bring to the public the horrors that were going on behind the scenes in concentration camps. And you had an ad like that. And there was television the way it is today. And the Fox News in that country did not want its public to see this and denied it. Is that the country that we live in? We live in a country where that atrocity can't be portrayed and, and disseminated to the widest possible population under the First Amendment and the press, right? We well, want January 6th to happen again by keeping it undercover and rewriting the history of it? You know, and here's the thing. So you have the Fox Broadcasting Company, obviously, which requires a license from the FCC the Fox News Network, because it is, and I hate the word news because it's not what it is, is a cable news channel. So I don't think there are the same or, or if any kind of FCC specific licenses and, and regulations, but nonetheless, 
the fact that it's still anchored in a broadcasting company that does indeed have an FCC license requirement in the underlying Fox, you know, universe. And then the facts that is the fact that it's out there and just, you know, denying us our ability to speak about pro-democracy, I mean, to me is very problematic. And I think ultimately um, you and I will be discussing this more. I do want to pursue every possible legal remedy here because I want, at the end of the day, I'm not looking for money. I'm not looking for a lawsuit that, you know, to sue for damages here. I, I want the ad to be played so that I can speak to people that may have a different view of things and say to them, come on, don't you think that leading an insurrection against democracy is bad? Come on, here are some Capitol Police officers. Here's what they have to say about it. They let, agree me make, let me make it, let me even, let me geek you up even more, not that you're not geeked up for this enough. We talk about making bad law. How can you sit on the sidelines? and allow this to happen to set the precedent for the next time. Because if, if you don't take a stand now, if the PAC doesn't take a stand now and go after this, it's going to happen every time. And you're gonna be known, and, and it's gonna be in the hallways of Fox News that all they have to do is reject the ad and write a little letter, and you're gonna go and run and run hide. Is that, is that Midas touch? That is not Midas Touch. Midas Touch, our fighters, Midas Touch doesn't give up. And that is why we have Popak as our lawyer and as our legal AF co-host. And so, Popak, I want to thank you for this incredibly insightful edition of Legal AF. I want to thank you for listening out there um, to this Legal AF. We hope you learned a lot about the Department of Justice. You probably learned a little bit about Bitcoin. You learned a lot about Um, some of the recent Supreme Court actions taking place. We hope you share and spread that information to your friends, family, and colleagues. And of course, we hope that you continue to unabashedly, unequivocally go out there and support our democracy, our institutions. And we hope that's one of the key things you take from these Legal AF podcasts. Popak, any final words? Other than I I am sure that we're gonna refill the water glass and have another six or eight great topics for next Sunday. And thank you to the Midas Mighty for all the support and love that we get on uh, on Twitter. As Jordy would say, shout out to the Midas Mighty. (laughs) 